as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us go to gigantic.is that's gigantic.is and save your seat for our january cohort your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today so joel if i'm investing in you the goldman corporation and i give you a hundred dollars how am I ever going to get my money back? Well, you're probably not. True. <laughs> There's actually a few ways I could get you your $100 back and then some. I'm listening. I may be able to buy you out as the company gains more profit, or I may find another investor who wants to come take your place. So you'd get your $100 back and they would come in as a new investor. So that would be like buying back my shares? Right. I may be able to share a percentage of profits with you over time. I like that one. So that's like, Dividends. Right. And if you're really lucky, I might IPO and you get a very big payday. Well, I wouldn't say no to that. <laughs> Welcome to Rocketship.fm. 
podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. All right. So we are here with our, this is now the third episode in our funding series. So if you haven't heard the first two, go back and listen. Today, we're going to be talking about liquidity and Joelle, Why do we even care about liquidity? We care about liquidity because this entire series has been about funding and getting the money you need to either get started or continue to grow. And when you get this money from investors, it's not charity. They're they're expecting a return on this investment, right? Why wouldn't they just throw their money in the stock market then? Well, they can. But historically, if you look at the stock market, you can estimate that you'll make you know, some conservative percentage of return on your money over time. And the reason people would choose to invest in something like a startup is the idea of more risk, more reward. So if they see an opportunity with you that they think you're going to take this company huge or big enough where even their shares may be bought out at a certain point in time, they're going to do the math and take some sort of a calculated bet that you're going to give them a better return on their money than they may get in something like the stock market or some other investment. So to learn a little bit more about liquidity and how founders view it, I called up Nick Francis, the CEO of Help Scout, and this is what he had to say. Well, and I know there's some negative byproducts to this, but I, I personally find it very fascinating that so many companies can build a huge business without going public today. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, not that they're a model citizen by any stretch, but Uber's a $54 million billion business and they aren't public yet, right? Uh, there's they tons of really big companies that are waiting a while and they're, they're eventually going to go public. But there's other... Because of the capital that exists in our our markets today, I just think there's opportunities beyond going public to creating liquidity for shareholders. Whatever the situation may be, as long as you don't really screw up your cap table along the way, there are so many other opportunities to uh, invest capital in the business and return capital to investors in a responsible way without having to go public. Because going public means so many other things for the business that may not be desirable, depending on the entrepreneur and the team behind the business. So we wanted to play a little game called What If? And how it's going to work is Help Scout's going to be our guinea pig. And we're going to look at what it would be like if they took these different liquidity routes. So we're going to take four scenarios today, share buyback, dividends, acquisition, and IPO, just to see what it would look like in each scenario. So let's uh, crack this open and get into the first scenario, share buybacks. So there's a few ways where you may be able to buy back shares from your investors. Probably one of the most common is if you get an additional round of investment from new investors, say you raise an A round from a venture capital company. At that point, you may be able to go back to those initial angel investors, buy them out of those shares. They can then go invest in another early stage company and you move forward with the VCs over that next hump and next stage of growth. So I'm an angel investor and you know I invested in you two or three years ago. I gave you, you know, $25,000. Now, when they're raising that new round, I would sell 
the new, the A round investors, my shares and basically make those shares available in the pool of Help Scout shares uh, for those new investors. That's right. If you were ready to cash out and move on, you could absolutely do that. Interesting. And so what if um, what if they're a little bit farther down the line and, you know, Help Scout, maybe, you know, they've got some cash in the bank. What can they do to uh, for those investors that are ready to put their money elsewhere? Well, Nick gave a really interesting example of this in the case of SurveyMonkey. And here's what he described. It depends on the it depends on where you're at as a company. So when you're in several hundred million dollars a year in revenue, like a Survey Monkey, and very profitable, uh, you can actually just take on debt at a very low interest rate and pay back investors at a wonderful return, and then just pay back on that debt. So uh, when you're very very cash flow positive, like a company like that is, then it's pretty straightforward. And that's a wonderful opportunity. But you have to be cash flow positive in order for that opportunity to present itself to you. Uh, so that's kind of what happens at the very large hundreds of millions of dollars per year stage. So how might Help Scout approach this? If Help Scout were to do very well over the next two or three years, there's another class of investor that would like to come in. Who knows if we would do business together, but there's another class of investor that would come in and help us explore the next steps of the business and in that process be willing to cash out investors if they're getting uh if they're getting impatient what it sounds like what would would happen is um you know help scout could theoretically raise debt from a traditional um lending uh firm and knowing that their interest rate would be set and then they could use that capital to buy back the shares uh, for any of those investors that you know wanted to sell their shares at that time? Right. And the key thing to keep in mind if this is something you want to do is that you really need to be cash flow positive so that the financial institutions that are going to be lending money to you will actually see you as a viable candidate for a loan. All right, so it's what if time. Now, what if Help Scott wanted to pay dividends? So if they wanted to pay dividends out to their investors, they would decide on some percentage of their profits that was going to be paid out. But for the sake of easy math, let's just pick $10,000 is what is going to be doled out every month. Now, if I'm an investor that holds a 10% share in the company, that means each month I get 10% of the total dividends being allotted, which would be $1,000 a month. Oh, so this isn't based on the revenue generated that month or their performance that month. This is more of an arbitrary number that's then just divided based on ownership of shares? Yeah, typically the way it would be structured is that the investors see the time frame in which their original investment would be recouped. They may be able to see that if they're getting you know, $1,000 per month based on this dividend arrangement, that in five years, they will be paid back in full. And then from five years on, every $1,000 check that comes to them is just profit. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And then they still own the shares. So if you went the dividend, dividend route, could you also go the IPO route? If you go the dividend route, you don't often see a company then go on to IPO. And the reason for that is because a company that's going to go for an IPO invests every penny that they make back into the company, often operating at a loss because growth is the number one thing that they're aiming for. 
Whereas a company who is sharing dividends with their investors is really aiming to be around and be profitable for the long term. And because they're not planning on IPOing or selling necessarily, their way of creating a liquidity event or series of events for their investors is to pay them a small amount each month over time. Now, in line with dividends, but a slightly different model, which is currently being pioneered by IndyVC, uh, when we spoke with Andy White, he described to us this new model uh, that some venture capitalists are starting to adopt. There, there, you have to change the mechanics of the investment. This is no longer a for equity early and I'm pushing you to exit because that's the only time that uh, I get my money back. Uh, there's a there's ways that we can partner with that entrepreneur. Um, with Indy specifically, the, the way that it works is um, they're making the investment and then they're tying the payback of that to the founder's compensation. So as the company grows and the founder wants to pull more money out of the company, then they start paying back the investor at the same time up until the point in which they pay back 1x of the investment. And then once that happens, they flip that so that the founder starts getting more, but the investor continues to get money until they do about 5x, and then they're done. There's no equity, there's no warrants, there's no additional compensation. The founder continues to own their company. The investor was able to help them grow early. And now the founder can continue to run their business for as long as they want. No pressure to exit. So the dividend route is really for a company that's going to stay private, they're going to generate revenue, and their way of creating liquidity for their investors is through these dividends. Correct. Cool. And so before we jump into acquisition and IPO, let's just hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's play this out another way. What if Help Scout becomes really attractive to a larger company and they end up getting acquired? What does that look like and how do the investors get paid out in that scenario? So on day one, they will usually get 50 to 75% of the cash that they are owed. Now that is based on their percentage ownership in the company and the type of stock that they own. And then there's usually... That other 50 to 30% is reserved for misrepresentations or any other issues that may come up with the deal. If there was something that wasn't disclosed ahead of time, uh, there is some money reserved for that. Now, if you're an employee, it can get a little bit more complicated. Uh, You could get part of your cash up front, and then you may have an earnout or timeout clause in your contract where you'll have to go work for the company. Uh, for a certain amount of time, usually three to four years, or you may be revested. And that's where part of the buyout is revested into the purchasing company's stock. So to give you a better idea of what this looks like, we wanted to bring you the story of Perfect Audience's acquisition by Mirren. So here's the story told by our interview last year with Brad Flora. We launched Perfect Audience in October of 2012, and that winter was spent um, just sweating it out, worrying about, is this going to work? Are we going to get enough customers over the holidays to, to build a real business? 
And then 2013 was spent building out, once we saw that people liked the product and there was actually going to be an opportunity there, um, it, it was spent hiring. And, and how do we find 10 more people to join our team as we grow? And they need to be the right people at the right time to solve the problems that we're facing and also the ones that we're going to be facing. And near the end of 2013, we felt like we'd actually figured out a lot of that stuff. Um, our revenue was growing in double digits month over month. Uh, we had just hired someone away from Google to manage our agency relationships. Um, we had this eight-person engineering team that was cranking out code very swiftly and really getting along together. Uh, it was a really great feeling, very fulfilling to kind of get to that point. And around that time in November of 2011, one of our customers, Marin Software, which is a, a big publicly traded company that manage, helps uh, large brands manage their Google, uh, Facebook, and, and display advertising, um, approached us. They've been very happy with the experience of using Perfect Audience, and they had decided that they wanted to get into the display game in a more substantial way than they had. And so, you know, it all began with an email uh, sent over in, I think, mid-November uh, saying, hey, we'd love to do a phone call. And uh, we knew them as a customer and we talked to them at some trade shows. Uh, and then, you know, they invited, uh, they invited us in to do a demo. Um, and my co-founder was actually back in Chicago visiting family. So I went by myself and he phoned in. And when you do a demo for a customer or a company, you know, you expect two or three people to be there. And instead, they ushered me into the main meeting room at Marin, and there were, I don't know, 20 people there. And uh, we had a two-hour discussion. There was a demo, and then they had lots of questions. Very high execs in the company. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And uh, that was kind of how it started. Um, you know, apparently that went well, and they invited me back for a follow-on conversation with the CEO uh, about a week after Thanksgiving, and they said they were interested in talking about an acquisition, and uh, we said, well, we're not looking to sell right now. We have no need to sell. We're profitable. We're growing. We have this awesome team. We're really happy. We're independent. We don't really owe anybody anything, um, but we're a startup, so we'll hear what you have to say, and that's kind of how it began. waited until basically the deal was about to close before we told you know the team um, uh, but also we need we had to tell them before we closed the deal because unlike a lot of startups we didn't give options to our employees we gave them actual shares so they were shareholders with all the normal shareholder rights that I had or my co-founder had so we basically brought everyone into a room and, and we have a, a, a bit of a distributed team with uh, at the time we had three people in Chicago one person in North Carolina and 10 people in San Francisco. And um, when it became apparent that the deal was going to close or might be able to close at the end of the week, um, we didn't know that until Monday or Tuesday of that week. And so one of our San Francisco people was on vacation. We asked them to like literally cut his vacation short and we paid to fly him back to San Francisco overnight. Um, we had to fly out the Chicago people, all three of them, on 24 hours notice, fly out the North Carolina person. 
because it was very crucial to us that we don't do this over the phone or Skype or anything. We wanted to get everyone in the room together because this was we built this business together and, and if we were going to sell it, we were going to discuss it together. So um, we got everybody around our big lunch table in our main office and uh, we uh, broke the news, busted out some champagne and it was just silent as a tomb. No one had any clue how to react to this news. Is this good? Is this bad? Did Brad sell us down the river? Uh, you know, are we are we actually going out of business? And this is one of those kind of fake acquisitions that we hear about on Twitter all the time. What does this mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we spent hours kind of talking through things. I told everybody the, the story of the deal negotiations and the structure of the deal and we met individually with each member of the team to tell them how much stock they were going to get, how much cash they were going to get, how it was going to be structured, the timeline, the personal timeline for them for how they were going to get money and assets out of the deal. Um, and you know, we'd stayed up all night the night before, my co-founder and I, putting this together. So, um, so it was a long day, really stressful day, but a fun day. Um, and uh, and you know. It, over time, as people started understanding the structure of this, then they got pretty excited. And so today, in a lot of ways, not that much has changed. We still have engineering uh, and sales in San Francisco. All of our support team in Chicago has just moved over to Marin's Chicago team. Um, our remote guy in North Carolina is still working from home. Um, and so uh, a lot of the structural stuff is, is, is very similar to how it was before. Now, instead of working out of a, a weird condo in Soma, <laughs> we're right. working out of, you know, the Salesforce building in downtown San Francisco, um, you know, and, and our team is in one corner of a floor that has 80 engineers, uh, wow. which is very different. Um, but, um, but we're all still in the same vicinity to each other, working away on things. Uh, it's, it's not all that different day to day. And especially for the engineers, not, not that much has changed functionally. Uh, on the business side, um, you know, we are now engaging with customers far beyond the scale and caliber of the customers that we had access to on our own. You know, Marin works with many of the greatest companies on the planet, companies like Macy's and Hotels.com. And figuring out how to bring retargeting to those companies in a way that takes advantage of the great search work that they're doing with Marin, you know, all the Google ad management and all the data that comes out of that is actually a pretty fun product challenge. probably know what that bell means. We are on our fourth and last what if. What if Help Scout IPO'd? So how an IPO works is it's basically a company selling a portion of itself to public investors. This is usually done through an underwriting process um, where the company negotiates the sale of its stock um, to one or more investment banks. Now, these underwriters or the investment banks then turn around and sell the stock to a much larger pool of investors on the public market. 
the underwriters are compensated through fees and by basically underpricing the stock that they're purchasing and then selling it for more once it goes public. But what does this mean for the company, the founders, the employees, the VCs who funded the company while it's private? So before they can sell their shares on the public market, there's typically a lockup period that lasts anywhere in between four and six months. Twitter's IPO, for example, was 180 days. While this isn't a law, it's almost always requested by the underwriters or investment bank that's underwriting the deal uh, so that shares don't flood the market, which could completely crash the stock. So they usually want some time to see how the market's going to react to this company. And then now when this lockup period's done, it's extremely important as well because the market is going to be watching to see if the stakeholders in this company while it was private still believe in it. Are they just going to unload their shares and cash out? But uh, essentially, once a company's public and that lockup period is ended, anyone who owns equity or now shares in the company can sell them on the open and public market. Now, in the end, does planning for any of this really matter? Or is it all about building a great business? We'll leave you with some thoughts from Nick Francis. You know, an exit or some sort of liquidity event is the result of building something great. You can't get there without building something outstanding. And so uh, by focusing on the end without paying much attention to the means, (laughs) it doesn't really make sense to me. And so we've always been laser focused on just trying to build a great business. That's actually much harder than the exit part or the liquidity part. So by focusing 100% on that, um, we just uh, think the rest will kind of take care of itself. And uh, that said, I'm not very, I'm not trying to be irresponsible when I raise money. I'm well aware of what that means, and I'm well aware that I want to get a great return for my investors. But that comes right back to building a great business. And if we do our part there, the rest is going to pretty much take care of itself. And that concludes the third episode of our funding series. Big thanks to Nick Francis and Brad Flora for contributing today. We have another fantastic interview for you coming up this Sunday. So stay tuned. Stay on the lookout for that. And we'll be back next Wednesday with the conclusion of this funding series. When you get a chance, visit our website, rocketship.fm, subscribe to our newsletter, and subscribe on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any more of this funding series and future series that we have in store for you. And if you haven't yet, follow us on Twitter at rocketshipfm. You could follow me at Michael Saka and Joel at Joel Goldman. <laughs>